episode 18 of right we are sitting now i'm kenny kins i've decided to start doing that now because i never actually introduced myself <laughs> joining me is uh on one of my new co-hosts uh, george t mortimer hi ken <laughs> thanks for coming on and like helping out and everything people on the, the site uh will probably that read the site rather will probably know george from the um the armchair anarchy articles he's been writing for us and yeah thanks again for doing those they've been really popular so far oh it's been good fun it's been good fun now, you do a site called uh, media underground which i've been a fan of for quite a while now um, how did that kind of come about oh yeah uh, years ago uh, <laughs> basically i was kind of feeling that the media wasn't presenting articles and uh, news information in the, the way that i kind of uh, liked it to be presented so i just kind of started it myself basically mm. It's been going for quite a few years now, hasn't it? It's been yeah, I think it's about eight years now. I've been doing the site. I, I should really spend more time on it, but um, uh, you know, work commitments, <laughs> whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. We need to. You know, we've, I've always think that we should do more stuff for the site. We've, I don't. Know, it's been a bit more busy recently, so it's been quite cool. Ah, right. So that brings me to the subject of the site. First of all, I should apologise actually because we haven't done a show in what two weeks, I think now, which is pretty bad form for us. But we've uh, basically been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, like I said in the, I think in the last episode actually. But um, we've we've basically got a new version of the website that's going to go up in January, um, and it's not going to be, uh, it's all techie crap. But it's not going to be uh, based on the usual platform that we've been using since the beginning of the site, and uh, we're just doing bug testing and all that kind of crap. And we're going to try and figure out ways of uh, making it a bit more easy to use for people because I know some people hate the comment system and want a message board. So we're gonna, we've got a brand new message board, which is really cool. Um, we've also been putting together another show. Um, we're going to start doing a music show uh, once a week, hopefully. <laughs> um, and it's going to be 30 minutes long and it's going to be me and my friend Maz or Mario um, doing the show and it's just going to be looking at kind of cool underground bands and stuff. We're going to try and make it so this show's at the beginning of the week and that show's at the end of the week, <laughs> which is kind of strange but uh, and probably not going to happen as regularly as I hope, but uh, we'll see. But anyway, um, the site this week, we've had some really good articles. We've had well, yet another one from you today. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, today, rather this week, uh, rather which has been which was good, which is the armchair anarchy section. Um, who else have we had on? Oh yeah, this is another thing I was going to mention. Millennium. This is a TV show that was uh, done by Chris Carter, who was the creator of the X Files. Um, it ran for three seasons, and it's probably my at least in the top three favorite television programs of all time. Um, and I like it when. It basically it got cancelled a few years ago and the fans have started this huge online kind of petition to try and get it back up again and uh, I think they're 
facing a bit of an uphill struggle, but I think it's always cool to see this kind of, uh, you know, unity of people to try and get something big <laughs> happening again. Uh, and I really like the show in, the, in this climate of crappy television we've got at the moment. It'd be quite nice to see uh, a Millennium back over as a show or a film, actually. But uh, yeah, you can uh, check out their website at... I should probably have checked this before. <laughs> Where is it? Yeah, backtofrankblack.com. Um, Frank Black's being the main character in the show, played by Lance Henriksen, but not really kind of the stuff we cover normally, but because the show is so cool, and <laughs> it covers kind of City Now-ish topics, I suppose. So, uh, yeah, check those guys out and give them a bit of support. Um, what else have we had this week? We've got the weekly weird news, but we'll have an audio version of that coming up after me rambling here. Um, yeah, and we went to the Unconvention this week. We're going to do a big uh, kind of written article about the Unconvention. I'm writing it with Mark Foster, a guy I went with that's... Uh, He's a good writer and interested in this sort of stuff. So, yeah, we went to that. It was a really good weekend. And that's where I met our, uh, our guest this week. And we'll talk about him in a bit. But first of all, let's go to uh, Claire's Weekly Weird News. Good afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever you are. This is Claire with the Weekly Weird News, and I'm going to jump right into it. So, apparently the facts that you mostly vote behind a curtain and are not necessarily at the polls for a very long time don't seem to have much sway over Florida nudists who recently have been lobbying for clothing-optional polling places. They say it would make it easier for the nudist community to pass their ballots. 52 cows were struck dead after lightning hit a wire fence they were grazing next to in Uruguay last week. In more valiant animal electrical news, an octopus menace named Otto at the Sea Star Aquarium in Germany shot out a bright lamp with a precise jet of water and short-circuited the building. Spokespeople from the aquarium say he's a victim of Henri, allegedly having seen him juggle hermit crabs and throwing stones at the tank before. Vampire moths have been discovered. Of this strange population found in Siberia, etnomologists say that they may have evolved from a purely fruit-eating species. And a Frenchman on a high-speed TGV train in France got his arm stuck in the toilet while trying to fish out his mobile phone. A witness said he came out on a stretcher with his hand still jammed in the toilet bowl, which they had to saw clean off. The new scientist reports that homosexual activity can, actually, in some instances, produce offspring. That is, in beetle populations, where less than 7% of females were fertilized indirectly in a study. The International Fund for Animal Welfare found in a six-week observation period that more than 1,400 live exotic animals were being traded and sold online. The selling of rare live animals has been made easier with the internet, they say, and as is generally the case, regulators of the illegal activity have been a step behind. Moonwalker Buzz Aldrin says that the first astronauts sent to Mars should be prepared to spend the rest of their lives there, in the same way that European pioneers headed to America knowing that they would not return home. Because the distance to Mars varies between 55 million and more than 400 million kilometers, a round trip would take a year and a half. Buzz proposes, that's why you should send people there permanently. If we are not willing to do that, then I don't think we should just go up there once and have the expense of doing that and then stop. The point of doing manned missions to Mars, he says, are to do things that are innovative, new, pioneering. NASA has tentative plans to send the first astronauts to Mars around 2030 or 2040. And in case anyone is interested in getting some holiday shopping done, and not for those expensive exotic animals which are probably out of most of our price ranges, a sacred seashell in the form of the Virgin Mary was recently found on the coast of Virginia. And she only started at $24.99. She's still up on eBay. All right, thanks again to Claire for doing the third installment of the weekly weird news, or weird weekly news, I always get it the wrong way around. 
Um, we're really enjoying that section. And another new section this week is from one of our other uh, writers, readers, and appreciators, I suppose, uh, is Daddy Tank. And he's going to be doing a um, regular series for us now on sort of underground bands to replace the section where we just steal people's music. <laughs> uh, he's going to, uh, like, you know, trawl the internet and try and find some really cool kind of underground bands, hopefully with their permission, I hope. Um, and you know we'll play his segment on the show each week and that'll be after the interview in each thing just like what the music is at the moment um, but yeah this week's guest we've got uh, Jonathan Downs um, we've actually already interviewed him this is we're recording this after the fact ruining the magic of radio there um, but what did you think of the interview with, uh, with Jonathan what I thought it was fascinating uh, he was a very interesting guy to speak to yeah um, yeah, he had, he had plenty to say, that's for certain. <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, he's definitely done a lot of his life as well, which is, uh, you know, which is cool. It's always good to see people like that. <laughs> he made interviewing him quite easy, I think, because he, you know, he, he kind of almost did it himself. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I like that sort of thing, though, because I think people want to hear less of me talking and more of, uh, <laughs> more of the guests, I think. Yes, I guess, yeah. Yeah, especially after hearing me ramble on in these intros. But anyway, yeah, let's cut to that interview now. It's interviews with Jonathan Downs, the director of the... Centre for Fourteen Zoology. I will get that right one day. Uh, yeah, we'll cut to that now. Jonathan Downs, thanks for coming on the show. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Um, I was wondering if you could start off by giving the listeners a brief uh, biography of yourself. Oh, God, I hate doing this. Uh... <laughs> Okay, I was born at a very early age. Now, I was born in Hong Kong. I was born in Britain, brought up in Hong Kong in the 1960s. Uh, I'm nearly 50 years old, but the fact is, when I was, I was brought up under the last gasp of what was in the British Empire, and I think the fact that I was brought up in foreign climes under a completely different social situation than anything you have in Britain today is sort of um, sort of uh, moulded me into becoming maybe unusual amongst 50 year old men, 50 year old men currently um, in 1992 I formed an organization called the Center for Fortune Zoology which has now evolved into being the world's largest uh, mystery animal research group we it started off really as just a sort of conceptual surreal joke of mine I thought maybe half a dozen people might join it we might meet up in the pub every couple of weeks, have a few beers and talk about the Loch Ness Monster. What I wasn't prepared for was that it would become the largest mystery animal research organization in the world. But it has become that, and so we've grown to uh, meet the challenge. We've now got the world's biggest cryptozoological and Fortean publishing house. We've got a multimedia website called CFZ TV, which puts hours and hours and hours of footage out of our own films and documentaries out for free. Um, and we're going to be starting hosting other people's stuff as well very soon. Ah, cool. uh, we've got the longest standing cryptozoological journal in the world. We've got the world's, the English speaking world's largest um, um, cryptozoology conference, which is in August each year. And basically, looking back over the last 16 years, I'm quite proud, bloody amazed at what we've achieved. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds interesting. I mean, That's what... not a biography, is it? Really? I didn't actually give you a biography. No. <laughs> okay, I'm, four... <laughs> I'm 49 years old. 
married to my second wife, Karina, living with a bewildering collection of animals and weird people uh, in a house in a village in North Devon no one's ever heard of. I collect books, I collect guitars, uh, I have two stepdaughters, and I have a young puppy called Biggles. Yeah. I think that's, that's a bit more of a bio. <laughs> Um, so what got you interested in the in the area of, I guess, do you call it cryptozoology or Fortean zoology? Well, two slightly different things. Uh, cryptozoology is the study of mystery animals. It is the comes from the Greek cryptos hidden and zoology study for animals. Whole uh, The whole science was formulated by a Belgian geezer called Bernard Heuvelmans about 50 years ago. However, um, Fortean zoology was... was basically formulated by me about um, 18 years ago, because although cryptozoology is most of it, there's all sorts of other stuff which isn't truly cryptozoology, which I'm interested in, which, and which the CSZ deals. Things that are out of place, they're known animals, but they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. Things that are supposed to have been extinct in an area, but are still there. And your weird stuff, like things that are they're known creatures, but they're the wrong shape, the wrong size, or doing peculiar things. So that's what 14 zoology is, really. It's something I invented myself. But uh, to answer your question, back in Hong Kong when I was a kid, uh, we lived a existence which, sound, which really, talking about it now, sounds like something out of a novel by P.G. Woodhouse. And every Wednesday, my mother used to go um, into town from uh, where we lived up on top of the mountain to play tennis with her friends, drink coffee, and she'd go to the library. And uh, she'd bring back animal books for me and picture books for my little brother. I still call him my little brother even though he's 43 and amazing <laughs> in the army now. But um, he used to bring these he, she used to bring these back and one day she brought me back this book called Myth or Monster. Now, it was basically a children's version of On the Track of Unknown Animals by Bernard Heuvelman and it blew me away. I was already interested in animals. At the age of eight I'd already uh, got large swathes of the local fauna and jam jars on my windowsill and I was fascinated by animals but to uh, meet the concept that uh, there were monsters in Loch Ness and that there were people who believed in Bigfoot and Yeti and sea serpents and giant unknown cat species in Africa this just blew me away and it was one of the three great uh, what's the word epiphanies in my life the other two being when I heard the sex pistols and when I realised the girls were different to boys. <laughs> and so, um, the chase for the fairer sex, <laughs> love of raucous rock music and mystery animals has basically been the things which defined most of my life. Yeah, you actually, you were in a band yourself, weren't you? Well, for years, yeah. We made, I think it was 11 records. Um, much to my amusement, people still occasionally come up to me in the supermarket and say, yeah, you're John Dallas. And um, put my autograph on things. <laughs> I sell I sell far more books now than I've sold records, but it's fun. <laughs> and again, much to my amusement, considering I'm a fat bloke nearing fifty, uh, on MySpace the other not MySpace, what's called Facebook the other day, I got contacted by our old drummer and our old keyboard player. We're trying to find the bass player and guitarist, and so we may get together for a couple of shows next year. Ah, that'd be fun. Right, so we were talking about um, animals that shouldn't be there or you know, animals that are in the wrong place at the wrong time and also mystery animals. Um, I was, one subject I know you've written on quite extensively is the owl man. Now, I'm, I've got to kind of admit here I'm quite ignorant as to much about the owl man, so I'd be really interested in kind of finding out 
more about it. What is the Owlman? And could you give us a kind of history of it and your study? That's weird. This is the first... It, I haven't thought about the Owlman for a long time. This is the second time this week someone's asked me about it. I was actually there yesterday, down at Mormon Old Church, which is a uh, weird little church just outside the village of Mormon Smith in southern Cornwall. Mm. It's about six miles from Falmouth. I was down there yesterday filming for the Discovery Channel. So this is actually the second time in 24 hours I've actually told this story. It's quite <laughs> amusing. Especially as I had hardly thought of it for years. But um, back in uh, Easter 1976, the whole story started on Easter Saturday when two little girls who were on holiday with their parents in southern Cornwall came running out of the churchyard of Mornon Old Church at Mornon Smith screaming, Mummy, Mummy, I've just been frightened. We've just seen a feathered bird man flying in the trees. Now, I'm a scientist and feathered bird men are both zoologically and morphologically, if not impossible, ridiculously unlikely. <laughs> but there's been something about this case that has fascinated me for years because this was the, only the first of a whole string, a whole string of sightings which took place up until very, very recently. And so about 20-odd years ago, I got interested in this and started trying to track down as many of the eyewitnesses as I could. And eventually I wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Owlman and Others, which is probably the, it's the only major work ever written about it. And it comes to the conclusion in the end that uh, what you had there is a bit like a sort of three-dimensional poltergeist. It seems to be linked with uh, young women round about the age, round about the age of um, sexual maturity. Hmm, that's interesting. And has anybody listening to this who's ever had a teenage daughter or a teenage sister or any other teenage relative or teenage girlfriend will know that um, young women, as they young women as they go through that transition from girlhood to womanhood, can be a complete and utter pain in the arse. <laughs> and there's a long history of what is vulgarly called paranormal phenomena. I hate the word paranormal because the whole uh, concept of paranormal is, oh, well, man, it's just like the exiled man, <laughs> stuff we don't know. And I hate that. As far as I'm concerned, this is stuff which is all defined by laws of physics. It's just laws of physics we don't understand yet. Hmm. And, uh, there, but there is a whole string of reports of poltergeist activity, unconscious telekinesis, and all sorts of other horrific stuff which is connected with young women going through puberty. And I think the old man is a sort of three-dimensional poltergeist, something like that. All right. That's interesting what you said about uh, the paranormal in your dislike of the use of the word. I personally don't like it. I often think it's found as a kind of, used rather as a kind of a, an excuse to not, to be lazy almost and not research things properly. <laughs> I don't know if you agree with that. Oh, God, do I agree? Is the Pope a Catholic? Am I allowed to say it's the Pope a Catholic on this? Yes, of course you are. <laughs> Good. Because, of course, the Pope is a Catholic, according <laughs> to empirical evidence. And there is empirical, empirical evidence as well that bears do indeed defecate in the woods. <laughs> yes, I've, I think that to say, oh, wow, man, it's all paranormal, I think it is uh, indicative of lazy and lazy thinking. And... I'm very embarrassed when I read stuff I read 20 years ago, which falls into the, oh, wow, man, the world's all very weird uh, <laughs> category. Uh, in my um, defense, I did smoke an awful lot of dope back then. 
<laughs> these days, I don't. These days, I am relatively healthy, completely drug-free, and I hell of a lot saner than I used to be. And I find the uh, movement, the movement within uh, Fortiana, broadly Fortiana, towards um, just talking a little semi-mystical nonsense. I find it disturbing. Mm. It's the first. It's the first steps towards yet another phony religion. I don't like that at all. No, I, John. Sorry, um, John. John, what would you categorise? Um the activity occurring then if it's not paranormal what would you I just don't like the word it is is paranormal I just don't like the words paranormal and supernatural because I think they're a cop out I think that they there isn't there actually isn't a reason there there isn't a decent uh, word for them I just dislike the words paranormal and supernatural they're perfectly good words I just personally don't like them because I think they are it is then leading people towards the possible, the easy cop out of um, lazy thinking. Do yeah. you think that, that maybe because there's um, sort of strange activity occurring around these sightings, that uh, perhaps the witness that's actually seen it doesn't have a frame of reference to categorise what he or she oh, has Lord, seen? Oh, Lord, no. And I as a know, result, edits their yeah, own yeah. interpretation. You know, yeah. I know I, two of the witnesses personally. Nice people, and yes. Of course, I would never, I would never criticise. I would never criticise somebody who's undergone a ridiculously life-changing and bizarre experience for using whatever terms of reference they like to describe it. The people I have a problem with are the lazy magazine editors and the lazy journalists, like I used to be, who just simply um, categorise it all in sort of do 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 twilight zone <laughs> stuff. I don't know. I I sometimes look at it as the fault of schools in some ways. If you look, you know, look at the way education's going and the way it's kind of degrading gradually, it seems to be aimed more at kind of these days at passing tests rather than actually learning anything or you know, kind of any sort of absorbing any real knowledge and like actually learning to enjoy learning. If that makes sense. Ten years ago, there were fifteen hundred people at Uncon each week each year. This year, there were about six hundred. It's because ten years ago there were still school leavers. There was a steady stream of school leavers who were encouraged to think outside the box and to use Fortiana as a way of developing an alternative viewpoint of the world. Now I am absolutely appalled at the standards of the, the standards of education and the standards, the level of knowledge from most school leavers. And I have got the kids who come here to do work experience because as well as as well as the magazines and books we publish I and mean, we also we uh involved in running a zoo in north somerset and a lot of community programs and stuff here and i have a load of kids come and do stuff with this and i'm appalled at the lack of knowledge i mean there's a boy i know who does quite a lot of stuff with us he's got eight gcse he's a very bright boy and he's going to go far but he came in the other day when I was doing some new species labels for the zoo. And he said, uh, John, what's a new world monkey? I said, it's a monkey that comes from the new world, you twit. <laughs> what's the new world? I don't believe that. They don't teach. I said, it's a bit the Columbus discovered in 1492. Oh, I've discovered, the, I've heard of Columbus. He went on to discover Australia, didn't he? Oh, I think, oh, for God's sake, no. <laughs> and then another boy who comes here, another bright child, has actually won a scholarship to a public school, and I have a map of the world up, up on my computer screen for something, and he couldn't name any of the continents. 
Oh, and I'm just absolutely appalled at the way that education over the last 10 years has just become an exam factory. Yeah. And it is all about teaching kids how to pass exams and giving, and giving kids a completely unreal set of expectations and teaching, not teaching kids about the joy of knowledge for its own sake, not teaching kids to want to go and expand the sum total of human knowledge, but teaching kids that what they really want to do is have their own reality TV show. Yeah. And stuff like that really, really, really annoys me. And it's got to the stage that um, I've been annoyed by this stuff for years, but I'm beginning to start getting militant and going out and doing something about it. We're starting a campaign of CFZ, uh, a CFZ outreach project next year, which is going to be about those we do school visits already, but we're going to be upping our numbers of school visits, upping our work within the community with children and with vulnerable adults, and which um, I can't go into details yet, but it's looking very, very likely that we're going to be working with some of the community projects for the people who slipped through the poverty trap, the really long-term unemployed, the people in society at the moment right off as being unemployable, and we're going to be doing stuff with these people as well. Oh, that sounds really good. Now, I'm glad you... Uh, well, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Basically, I'm an old anarchist hippie. This is where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's it's good. I mean, there seems to be a lack of people um, kind of really actually going out and testing some of these uh, theories, you know, like these, like we were saying, you know, paranormal, in, in quotes, claims. And it's, it's quite uh, good to see people actually going out and, you know, empirically <laughs> testing this stuff because <laughs> it's a lot easier to sit back uh, read a few articles and write a book whereas you know actually going out and testing this stuff so you know it seems to be well, falling yeah, the wayside that's exactly what we're trying to do we're trying to go out and test it and then bring it back with proper evidence and present it to the world at large because so many people within the 14 universe just preach to the converted mm. well there's no point in preaching to the converted they already believe you yeah, <laughs> and I'm not interested in just speaking to a bunch of I don't know well-meaning ex-students and academic types somewhere in London. Half of, you know, the, I want a I want a, a constituency with more than 500 ex-art students. Yeah, and so uh, we're trying to take what we do to the wider world and use it as a hopefully as a way to inspire people to come and follow in our footsteps and do stuff yeah i mean you worried that maybe that you know the next generation you know this whole kind of thing might kind of fall at the wayside a bit that people aren't really kind of picking up the torch anymore well i'm absolutely terrified about it i'll tell you why because over the years there have been a heck of a lot of very good 14 organizations Mm. there hasn't been a single one of them no there's only been one and that's the society for psychic research which was found Sometimes, sometime in uh, the 1880s, I think. Apart from that, every single uh, Freudian organisation has fallen apart when the guy who founded it died. Yes, yeah, and you have, for example, Situ, Society for Investigation of the Truth of the Unexplained, set up by Alvin T. Sanderson in the 50s. Um, that didn't even survive his life. He was in his deathbed, and people were pinching all his files, and the organisation fell apart about three weeks before he died. Yeah. Um, although I didn't like the man, um, there was a very, very well-known UFO organization in Britain run by a guy called Graham Birdsall. He and I didn't get on, but he did a bloody good job. And his organization only lasted two and a half months after he died before it fell apart, fell apart in infighting. 
And one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment, I am in fairly poor health myself. Mm. And most of the people who've been working with me for a long time in the CSZ have the same sort of age as me. We're all in our, we're all in our late 40s or 50s. And quite a lot of us are in fairly dodgy health. So at the moment, I'm trying to recruit the next generation. And I'm trying to get this whole thing drawn up legally. So in 50 years' time, I might be forgotten that the CFZ will continue because that's what it's about. It's not about individual self-aggrandizement. When I'm dead, I'm dead. That doesn't matter. But I want the stuff that I've worked for in my life to continue. Yeah, that's good to hear. All right, okay, well, we'll uh, sort of divert away from that subject and look at uh, start looking at some of the actual cases themselves. I know that uh, one thing you've been looking at recently is the Chupacabra. We haven't really talking about uh, spoken about that on the show yet. So could you give us a kind of a background on the Chupacabra and then maybe a little bit of uh, background on the research you've done? Well, yeah, now, again, it depends which way you look at it. I will give you, it's a bit like one of those uh, multi, one of those, uh, what are they called, multi-thing, multi-question tests. What do you call them? Multiple choice. Multiple choice question. Mm. Thing the Chupacabra is A, a disgusting genetic construct which came from American laboratories using back-engineered alien technology. B. A demon which stalks across Hispanic Central America. Or C. An interesting collection of coincidences and at least one unknown species of animal. Take your pick. Now, according to uh, Fortean orthodoxy, around about 1994, there were um, a new mystery animal came on the scene. First of all, in the Highlands, of Puerto Rico in the Lesser Antilles and then spreading all the way across Hispanic America. It was supposed to be a semi-bipedal creature which I described as looking like Sonic the Hedgehog on acid. <laughs> uh, about four feet tall with spikes coming out of its back. Some people said that it actually had five limbs which would mean unusually but uh, uniquely for a highly ordered animal. It was not a tetrapod. And it is supposed, some people said it could fly, some people said it could leap enormous um, distances, and everybody said that it preyed on domestic livestock, and that it would um, make two puncture marks in the neck, just like Bela Lugosi in a crappy old vampire film, and the corpses would be left completely exsanguinated. The trouble is about that, that that's nearly completely and utterly wrong. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about Puerto Rico is that it is a melting pot, to use that horrible new labor um, expression, of at least four different cultures. It was the last place, it's the place that's got the last remaining bits of the original Carib rainforest. It still has quite a few, although the people have been wiped out, there are still echoes and bloodlines of the original Tanya Indians. I know these days, you're, these days, a lot of people in the West say that it is politically incorrect to talk of the native people of North America as Indians, but as they refer to themselves as Indians, I'm just going to ignore the politically correctness bit. It's also where Puerto Rico was also the capital of the Spanish Empire in the West, so there's a hell of a Castilian Spanish um, influence there, even though Spain got kicked out during the Spanish-American War of 1898, still the rich families on the island still send their kids back for a couple of terms of finishing school uh, in Spain. They still consider themselves um, spiritually to be a part of Spain. It's also, it was one of the main stopping-off points 
of uh, the slave ships from West Africa. So you've got a big, big cultural influence of West African animist religions. It's also very near, it's very, very, it's the next island along from Haiti. Uh, you know, the island of um, Hispaniola, which was Haiti and Dominican Republic. Mm. And so there's a big voodoo influence and a big Santeria influence. And ever since 1898, despite everything the American government likes to say, it has been a colony of the American Empire, which is not supposed to exist, and has been the subject to completely undemocratic rampant capitalism. So you've got all these different cultural and spiritual influences all come together into an amazing mishmash that you find nowhere else, that I find nowhere else in the world. Now, the thing is that uh, Puerto Rico, it's a place where people believe in monsters. There's been a whole string of different monsters reported there over the years, and monsters are quite a big part of the Santeria and Voodoo cults. And well, no, I won't call them cults. That's a that's a derogatory term. The Santeria and Voodoo belief systems, mm. and you have various fiestas through the year where they carry big paper mache monsters through the streets, call them vihantes. And the whole the whole country, the whole island is very much um, monsters are very much part of the island psyche. Mm. Now, indeed, in 1994, there was the the started to be sightings of this strange spiky beast called spiky-backed creature. And yes, in 1994, for about four years, there were a whole string of, as a whole string of attacks on domestic livestock. And they started off in the main, in the upper, the grassy uplands of Puerto Rico. Because Puerto Rico is based around a dormant volcano called El Yanqui. Right up the top of El Yanqui, you have the rainforest. Beneath that, you have high glass grassland plateau, but most of the island is uh, lowland scrub, uh, lowland scrub and banana farms. And the killings spread, or the reports of the killings spread all the way across. And uh, reports of the killings spread all the way across the island. And then the name Chupacabra started to be picked up for unknown creatures seen all the unknown creatures and unknown killings all the way across Spanish. South America. Mm. The one thing I've discovered, I've been there twice and I've written two books about it, is that the incidents on the grassland plateau of um, the Canavanas Plateau of Puerto Rico itself have got very little to do with anything else that happens in South America. So forget about them at the moment. Weird animals are seen all over the world, weird animal deaths happen all over the world. Um, these have nothing to do with the original Chupacabra accounts. Now, the other thing, next things you have to uh, discount was if you read any of the books, on, the books on the subject and the UFO magazines and stuff around the world, you get uh, these accounts that the Chupacabra is the name for an ancient evil. Well, I don't think it actually is, because I know the bloke who came up with the name. <laughs> the bloke who came up with the name was a, it was a guy called Ishmael Aguayo, who is the head of the Canavanas Civil Defence, is a mate of mine, and he and a mate came up with it uh, in a bar in Canovanas about uh, um, 10 years ago. Uh, and the killing started in about 1994, and about six months later, Ishmael Aguayo and his two mates came up with the name Chupacabra, literally the goat sucker, because it's supposed to suck blood out of goats. Now, everybody immediately put two and two together and made five. They assumed that the creature they had seen that had spikes on its back 
and was seen lurking around some of the farms on the highland, uh, in the highland grassland areas was the same thing as had caused the quasi-vampiric attacks. It wasn't until much later I discovered that there were two forms of, blood, of vampiric attacks. Some of the creatures, especially the smaller ones that had had bite marks in his neck to drink the blood out, had also had a triangular um, hole cut in the head, in the head to be in the skull to be the brains out. Hmm. It was only very recent. It was that that actually taught me what we were talking about. What the thing that caused the killing that is indicative of an attack by a mongoose. Now, there are lots of different species of mongoose, reaching from the African dwarf mongoose, which is tiny, up to some of them, which are considerably the size of a medium-sized dog. However, one of the most famous mongoose, um, both culturally and, in other words, great Indian mongoose, which is something about twice the size of a ferret, and is best known probably from Rudyard Kipling's story, Ricky Dicky Tavy in the Jungle Book. One problem, there ain't no mongooses in the New World. <laughs> Certainly ain't no mongooses on Puerto Rico. Aha! I did some digging. Yes, there are. They were introduced in 1890 in order to keep the rat population down. I then did some more digging, and I found out through Ishmael at the Civil Defence and through some people in the town planning department of Canovanus that for some unknown reason there was an enormous explosion in the rat population in the highlands of Puerto Rico in about 1993. Now, the interesting thing about carnivores of any species is that they increase their numbers exponentially just to fill, just just according to how much food food there is there for them. This is why um, fox hunting is such a stupid idea if you're trying to justify it as a way of keeping down the fox population. To say that a hunt kills four foxes during the year, all the fox populations, all the fox uh, vixens are going to do is give birth to four more cubs that autumn, and it makes no difference to the fox numbers. <laughs> That's why during the foot and mouth ban, when hunting was completely banned, it made no difference whatsoever to the fox numbers. But I'm digressing. <laughs> what I believe, oh, I digress. That's what I do. I'm an old git and I ramble. <laughs> Randy is hard on my arteries. But what I believe happened is that the because of the incredible increase in the uh, rat population, the mongooses um, also increased in numbers. And when they killed all the available extra rats, they went on a killing spree rampage and started attacking some of the creatures, some of the domestic livestock, especially chickens, ducks. And you're going to say, how can a mongoose bring down a goat? <laughs> a goat or something the size of a medium-sized dog, the size of a sheep. Mm. Well, not on the Puerto Rican highlands, it's not. I'd always thought this until last time I was in Puerto Rico, about four years ago. Me and Nick Redfern were driving along, and this little flock of the most ridiculous-looking creatures you've ever seen <laughs> sort of bounced out in front of me. I thought, what the bloody hell is that? <laughs> and Nick, <laughs> Nick shoved his foot on the, um, on the brake and jetted to a halt. What the hell are those? They're weird things. They they looked a bit like guinea pigs more than anything else. And they were about the size they were about the size of my um little puppy and then my border collie puppy. And it turns out that they are a type of goat. They are the main goats of the Puerto Rican Highlands because the goats are not kept for milk like they are usually in Europe, they are a meat animal. Hmm. And not not only are they a meat animal, they are a meat animal that's killed fairly small, fairly young. And they are ridiculous looking creatures. And whereas a, even the most determined mongoose couldn't bring down the sub, a creature the size of a sheep, it could quite easily bring down one of these ridiculous <laughs> things. 
Uh, they're about, you know, they're not massive. They're about twice the size of one of those finished giant rabbits, you see. Yeah. Ridiculous little creatures. <laughs> and suddenly the whole thing started making a little bit more sense. However, right from the beginning, all the eyewitness reports have said, Senor, the creature has the face of a devil. Hmm. Now, when I say to you and to most, I'm sure most of the people who <laughs> go to your website, the face of the devil, you think of the iconography, Judeo-Christian iconography, of the devil being the goat of Mendes, hmm. having the uh, big horns of a goat. They seem to keep on back, back to goats here. But, you know, um, <laughs> the what was essentially a Christianization of the great god Pan or Canunos, hmm. the lord of the woods. Yeah. Not at all. When you go to South American religious art, with Central American religious art, which has so much, especially Puerto Rican, which has all these um, influences from the original, uh, the original inhabitants of the region, and from West Africa, and from Voodoo and everything else, their pictures of the devil, this weird-looking ratty thing. So suddenly, you don't have to have something that's big enough to bring down an animal the size of a sheep. You don't have a creature that has the face of a goat. You've got something that's got the face of a rat or another rodent that doesn't have to be that. And we've already really got the killings out of the way by just proving that they were a mongoose. Hmm. Especially when I found that I haven't actually been a killing since 1999. The sightings of the spiky thing continue and continue to this day. But there hasn't been a vampiric chupacabra-style attack on the Granavanos Highlands for nearly 10 years. Mm. So we forget about the vampire. We forget about the mongoose. We prove that that was a mongoose. Mm -hmm. Now, what creature looks like a rat? The spikes up and down its back. And what could it eat? Now, the attacks on domestic livestock may have finished, but the attacks on domestic uh, produce haven't. Now, I want a little story. Back in 1968, I was a nine-year-old boy living in Hong Kong, and Chairman Mao, the year of the revolution, and so I don't, this doesn't go in the history books, but there were several, several very nearly invasions of Hong Kong in 1967-68 by the mm. communist Chinese. And I remember when I was nine years old seeing troops of Red Guards marching, uh, troops of the Hong Kong Red Guards marching up and down the hill. There was very, very nearly a revolution. It mm. didn't happen, but it very nearly did. Now, um, as a result of that, everybody, all the English population, all the European population, were all very much on edge. Now, it's a matter of historical record that in 1968, there was an enormous corruption scandal in the Hong Kong police, and there were links with organized crime and triads and drug smuggling and prostitution and all sorts of other jolly things. And the, although it was finally quashed and um, officers um, who were responsible were kicked out, um, the Hong Kong government, instructed by uh, the British government and eventually by Her Majesty, were told to appoint somebody to manage to rejig the Hong Kong police pay structure and management structure so this sort of thing could never happen again. And the person they brought in was actually my father. Now, this lot is all official secret stuff, act stuff 
But as far as I know, everybody involved is now dead, so I can get away with saying this. <laughs> if not, we're all going to be sent to the tower, but that's another story. <laughs> Basically, my dad was brought in to sort all this out. Uh, he did sort all this out. And as a result, he became friends with the new um, police commissioner in Hong Kong. Uh, I won't mention his name because although I know he is dead, I believe his family is still alive. And so I don't really want to cause embarrassment because what he did next is very funny, but quite possibly an absolutely appalling breach of um, uh, police and police and military ethics. <laughs> this, um, this, police, this police chief lived in a nice little bungalow down in a nice little bungalow halfway down the mountain. Which was, and we quite often as a family used to go and visit them, which was amazing for me and my little brother, because hardly anybody in Hong Kong has a house with a garden. Most people lived in apartment blocks. And it was fantastic to actually have a garden to play in. And I remember one day at the end of 1968 going there for lunch, and this police commissioner was absolutely bloody livid, and he was bright red and shouting and stomping around the place that bloody communist guerrillas and insurgents were taking a blow at the British Empire by attacking everything that he held dear. <laughs> were we talking about his wife? No. Were we talking about his kids? No, we were talking about his garden. <laughs> and something had broken into his garden and destroyed his prize-winning banana trees. Now, this is next bit is completely illegal. I think it's hysterically funny. <laughs> in order, he was convinced that these were communist guerrillas trying to undermine the stature of the British Empire. So we say guerrillas, we mean literally guerrillas, not it, guerrillas. No, he thought it was guerrillas as in freedom fighters, you know. Oh, right. <laughs> and so he, so he set out snipers with night sights. <laughs> and the next night, true to form, the, the insurgents, the vandals came back. The shots ran out, and two bodies were found on the grass. Were they the bodies of communist red guards? No, they were the bodies of Hodgson's porcupine, a uh, quite the largest rodent in South China, and something which loves about eating banana trees. Now, I went there, I saw the dead bodies of the porcupines, and I saw the damage they did on banana trees. And so, when back in 2004, I was in the highlands of um, Puerto Rico talking to this guy who said, No, senor, I have not had an attack on my animals since 1998 or 1999, but something, she come and she attacked my bananas. I asked him, I just rang a bell, I said, can you show me? He said, yes, it happened last week. And I went and I saw the damage that something had done to the banana tree, um, the trunks of the banana trees. And I don't know if you know this, but bananas don't have woody trunks to their trees. They're weird, pissy things. Mm. And I saw it, and it rang a bell. It was identical to the damage that had been done to the banana trees of my father's mates 40 years before. And I then knew exactly what the spiky thing seen on the Canavanus Islands is. It's some sort of porcupine. Yeah. And I... There's a hell of a lot more to it than this. I can't really distill... Um, Sort of four years research, <laughs> 390, pa 390 pages into uh, sort of call for an hour. But I am convinced that the thing that has been described, that I described as something the hedgehog on acid, the spiky thing that walks semi bipedally, which attacks banana trees and is still seen at this present day, is some type of porcupine. And it has got absolutely nothing to do with the killings, which to me is an object lesson. 
Uh, it's the same as you have got sightings of big cats in the British countryside and you have attacks on sheep and everybody thinks that's, that's all because the big cats are being seen, it's got to be them that kills the sheep. Hmm. Well, in most cases, it's not. Two and two don't always make five. No. Anyway, sorry, I rambled on a bit there. No, no, that's no, it was the good. Of the <laughs> it was and good. it's available in my good book, my new book, which is available from all good retailers and online. Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean that's it's interesting. Why do you? Th- I mean, we've we've had a guest on in the past called Robert Curran from Ireland, who uh, looks into the mythology of certain you know folklores, I guess, and he um, basically found that you know these different cultures around the world believed in vampires and uh, and zombies and this kind of thing. Why do you, why do you think that people really do like to attach a kind of uh, mystical paranormal edge to these kind of creatures that they see? Well, it's what people do. I mean, in the village where I live now, I lived here when I was a kid. I only came back a few years ago. When I was a kid, there was a very well-educated farmer who lived across the road. And again, I won't mention names because although he's dead, his widow and his kids are still here. He was very, very well-educated. He'd been to university, nice place. But he was convinced that um, hedgehogs were coming in the middle of the night and sucking milk from his cows. The fact that their mouths aren't big enough to fit around a cow's teeth, the <laughs> fact that, that cow's milk would give them a tummy, a tummy upset which would kill them, um, was completely, you know, it was completely irrelevant. He was convinced that hedgehogs were stealing milk from his cows and he'd kill hedge, every hedgehog he could find. And this was a very educated, upper middle class bloke, you know, a sort of old-fashioned gentleman farmer. So people, even today, they imbue creatures with um, powers and attributes which they really don't have yeah it's uh, I think it's I don't know it's, a lot of people seem to think that you know I don't know people seem to miss these kind of like mythical tales from the past and stuff I wonder if sometimes if it's people trying to attach you know maybe even create new mythological creatures if that makes sense I think some people do but I don't think it's as cynical as that I, I think it's actually the way that the human condition works mm. I think that because people don't, just because that's the way life is, people don't always see the full picture. People um, fill in the gaps in their minds, and it's quite easy to create a monster out of uh, what is actually a perfectly ordinary animal. We just don't know what it is yet. Mm. It's like, for example, if somebody had written a scholarly paper 30 years ago called On the Incidences of Feral Pumas Found in the West Country Highlands of the United Kingdom Following Their Escape Under the 1976 Dangerous Wild Animals Act. If that had been published in the Journal of Comparative Biology and somebody had said basically that people had released um, known species of big cats into the woodlands rather than having them destroyed with the government passed a stupid piece of legislation and so now there are a very small number of um, exotic cat species living in Britain. Nobody would really pay any attention. No. But it wasn't. It was on the front page of the um, uh, on the front page of the, of the Sun and the Daily Mirror with Terror of the Beast of Exmoor <laughs> and suddenly um, the unknown the exotic cat species living fairly in the UK has become a monster. Yeah. So the whole thing becomes mythologized in a sense. Uh, exactly. By... It's what I call the mythologization process. Yeah. And this happens all along the line with everything. 
Yeah. It's one of those things that one of these days, when I've got the time and the energy, I'm actually going to try and write down, write a scholarly paper on how it works, because it goes through the same, um, what's the word, the same process all across the world. Hmm. Depend, you know, on whichever culture you go to, it's the same. Everybody from the, um, Native Australians, um, Native Australians to the Eskimos, all along, everywhere you go, the same process works. And I think I don't know enough about um, cognitive psychology, but I'm sure that there are parallels with it, with just the way that the human psyche works. Yeah. I mean, I guess one case we could quickly talk about is the, um, which is, I think has captured people's imaginations worldwide and still to this day, uh, is the Loch Ness Monster. And I know you've had a lot of experience uh, investigating this uh, phenomenon. Um, well, yeah, it's a perfect one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you first get in? I think you got in, uh, interested in it before you started really studying uh, the kind of cryptozoology, I guess. Uh, uh, something about a fishing trip I was reading about earlier. Yes and no. The fact is that um, the Loch Ness Monster is the most iconic mystery animal in the world. Mm. The fact that it probably doesn't exist, at least in the way that everybody thinks it does, doesn't stop it being something everybody knows what it looks like. <laughs> the famous image, which was taken in the 1930s, to become known as a surgeon's photograph, which we found out about 15 years ago was actually a fake using plastic wood and a toy submarine. Well, is the, you know, of the head and neck coming at the swan-like head and neck coming out of the water is the most famous image of a mystery animal that there has ever, ever, ever been, and probably the most famous image there ever will be. Mm. That, together with the Roger Patterson Bigfoot footage, is, they are the iconic ones. Mm. And that has shaped everybody's perception of what the Loch Ness Monster is that it is some big beast of humps and a long neck. And so when somebody like me comes up and says, no, it's not that at all, suddenly the headlines go, boffins, scuppers, Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> Loch Ness Monster is dead, says scientists. I have never said the fucking thing this day. <laughs> I, I was quoted. Um, I never, ever said the bloody thing was dead. But I was quoted in one of the papers as saying, the Loch Ness Monster is dead. No. The Loch Ness Monster, as a creature out of Jurassic Park, never existed. Mm. There are half a dozen good reasons for it. Reason one, because all the um, prehistoric animals that people have suggested it could be were air breathers. And although there are sightings most years of something in Loch Ness, they're just not enough to have a viable population of creatures coming up at the top of the lake and breathing air. Two, most of them would have given birth on land, and although there are a couple of land sightings on record, most of which can be explained by other phenomena, by other things, known by known animals or known geophysical phenomena, that are just the, there just aren't the number of sightings you'd need for ones coming up on land. Third, and most important, is a lot, the bloody lake was frozen solid in the last ice age. Nothing could have survived. <laughs> so the idea that there was something surviving from prehistory and that there was some sort of a lost world up in the Scottish Highlands is complete a bloody nonsense. However, there is enough evidence to suggest that there are and have been over the years some enormous fish in the lake. And what I believe it is, uh, what I believe, and what um, my colleague Richard Freeman might have been working towards for years, is that the monsters reported in many of the northern lakes, 
because a Loch Ness Monster shouldn't just be seen uh, in isolation. You should remember that similar things are seen in some of the lakes in the Lake District and various other lakes in Scotland and Ireland, all across Scandinavia, Northern Europe, Northern Asia, Siberia, North America, all across the top of the Northern Hemisphere, there are reports of such things. And we believe that the vast majority of them, when there is actually a bona fide mystery animal to report, are of enormous eels. And we've got a couple of theories for why um, occasionally bloody enormous eels are thrown up by the eel population. But the fishing trip to which you alluded earlier, <laughs> when I was about 11, me and my mate Dave went poaching one night and we caught an eel that was only about 18 inches long. And I've still got the scar on my finger from when the bloody thing bit me. The most painful bite I've ever, ever had. I've still got the scar. And mm. that was from an eel that was 18 inches long. If there is something that can cause a mutation that to make eels 18 to 20 foot long, Jesus, you don't have to uh, hypothesize a Jurassic Park scenario. That's a big enough monster for me. <laughs> I guess a lot of it is perpetuated as well by the tourist industry. Yeah, you know. Of course it is. Of course it is. Because, I mean, Loch Ness, although it's a beautiful place, during the, t- during the proper tourist months and the schools are on holiday and stuff, it's absolutely overrun by midges. When there aren't midges, it's cold and wet. And the Highland Tourist Authority, although it's an absolutely beautiful place and you've got historic places around it and you've got the Highland Whiskey Museum and the Highland Tartan Museum and Alistair Crowley's old house. Yeah, I was going to mention that. half as many people as uh, a putative Jurassic Park scenario. So of course the tourist industry um, perpetuated, but good luck to them. It yeah. just happens to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually went, uh, you, you did an expedition in 2005, I believe, to, uh, to Loch Ness. So could you tell us a little bit about what you went there for exactly and uh, how it went? I think an expedition is a slightly, um, we were there for three days actually filming, filming, filming a thing for American television. Oh, right. <laughs> we were there, with, you know Penn and Teller? Yes, yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, we were there doing some of the Penn and Teller show. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. And the reason that it was thought to be an expedition, there is a man whose name I shall not mention, because I've been rude, to, rude about him too many times this week, <laughs> and I have a horrible idea that he's going to sue me if I carry on doing this, <laughs> came up after the show came on and said, Penn and Teller, Penn and Teller pound CFZ expedition. They do not take cryptozoology seriously. The show was called Penn and Teller's Bullshit, for fuck's sake. They paid <laughs> two grand to do it. Of course it was going to be stupid. <laughs> of course it was going to be stupid. You go on any show called Penn and Teller's Bullshit, you don't expect to be taken seriously. <laughs> so, yes, they, one of, um, Penn Gillette dressed up as me, and... I come and tell her dressed up as Richard and they just messed about a bit and they took the piss out of the fact we had English accents and big beards and I had a big beard so what? I don't care but it wasn't an expedition there was nothing, nothing like it I, I've been to Loch Ness a couple of times it's, it's just an area that seems to accidentally have all these kind of uh, strange things happen to it I mean you mentioned Crowley earlier on I mean that must have really brought the tourist trade back up again when he moved into the area and you know, subsequently afterwards I mean the Beleskin well, house actually, you know. Well, I did a TV show about Crowley once, and somebody asked me what was his, and the presenter asked me what was Crowley's um, relevance to the modern world. And I said something I think is true, and they just laughed at me because they thought I was being cynical again. Hmm. 
not that I would ever be cynical. Some <laughs> everybody, everybody seems to think I am. And I said, Crowley was the first modern celebrity. He was the first. Per he was the sort of spiritual grandfather of Jade Goody, and that he was famous for being famous. <laughs> he didn't actually do much. He wasn't a particularly good magician. He was a fantastic self-publicist. He was the. You know, he was the spiritual. He, he was like one of the modern celebrities who appear in the pages of Hello magazine just because that's what they do. They haven't actually done anything. They're not famous for actually doing anything or for having achieved anything. And Crowley, his posthumous reputation is far higher than his reputation was at the time. And I don't think that anybody really got drawn to Loch Ness because of him until probably the mid to late 1970s after they found out Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin had actually bought the house there. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got Led Zeppelin fanboys who were thinking, Page is in touch with the dark side. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> cue the sounds sound of um, Dazed and Confused. And they went up there partly to cue for his autograph and partly to be able to be in touch with whatever mystic powers that... Uh, Crowley had given Crowley and the Dark Lord had given to uh, the boys from Led Zeppelin. I don't think that um, I don't think really that until fairly recently he affected the uh, tourist trade at all. Certainly not in his lifetime. No. Okay. Well, um, before we let you go, because we've had you for quite a long time now. Um, uh, I was... no, I'm sorry. I was just rambling. You know oh no, no, no. It's fine. <laughs> um, I met you recently at the Unconvention. Very briefly. Um, and uh, I bought a book from you called Strength Through Koi, which I read through quite quickly. <laughs> I just wanted to talk to you about how you managed to pull that off. <laughs> I would hope that nobody would take that as a sample of my um, literary output. <laughs> I'm, I'm, actually quite I'm actually quite proud of some of my books. Mm. Some of my books, I think, are quite groundbreaking. And some of them I've tried very hard with, because I do try to be a... Uh, wordsmith and using this using this language properly however this is just a piece of nonsense that <laughs> i knocked up for amusement's sake yeah. basically back along as i say in devon i was approached by a magazine who, whom we shall not mention uh in order to do a article about um folklore surrounding koi carp i said to them i can do more than an article lying through my teeth i'll do you a series thinking the series will only last two or three episodes <laughs> and then I had two or three stories uh, that I could write up um, about paranormal or 14 aspects to Koi Carr. The series actually lasted 18 months, so I had to make <laughs> up most of it. My favourite was the one, They Saved Hitler's Koi. Yeah, that's, which was, uh, that's my favourite of them, because that is complete and utter nonsense. <laughs> I actually had an uh, a, um, email from a colleague of mine saying, Dear Mr. Downs, one, how did you think you could get away with that? having that load of nonsense printed in such an Eskimo magazine, too, how did you get away with it? <laughs> the answer, I don't know. It's just complete rubbish. However, every story in there, including their saves Hitler's Cory, which actually claims that um, Hitler's pet fish are kept by a bunch of neo-Nazis somewhere up, somewhere up in Lancashire, um, all of those stories have a kernel of truth. Not much of a kernel of truth, all of the stories, to a greater or lesser degree, have some truth in them. Now, the truth, for example, in the Save Titler's Coy one, was that in, I think, 1934, Hitler made the Emperor Hirohito of Japan an honorary Aryan. 
This is actually true and can be checked up on any book on the Third Reich. Hmm. What, he, what the Emperor of Japan didn't do was send back a sacred fish that was thousands of years old from one of the Shinto temples <laughs> as a century present. <laughs> However, what is true, um, or what has been alleged in a hell of a lot more places than in that silly book of mine and in the pages of the magazine about pond fish, is that um, serving members of the British Army who'd actually got to the Führer bunker within hours, within a day or so of Hitler's suicide, had taken, um, had actually been members of the British Union of Fascists before the war, and had taken uh, curios as souvenirs from the Führer bunker, took them back, and it is alleged that there is a extreme right-wing neo-Nazi white supremacist group in the north of England who has these things as sort of sacred relics. That has been alleged in all sorts of places. The story that what the relics they are actually semi-worshipping are actually Hitler's pet fish, I made the whole thing up. Yeah. But it's... Um, I, this is the one thing I've written, the one book I've written, that basically I just had fun making up nonsense. <laughs> and when it came out in book form, I admitted it was nonsense. Yeah. While it was still appearing monthly in the pages of an ethical magazine on Pondfish, I decided not to admit it was nonsense to see how long I could get away with it. <laughs> it's quite and a long time. Amazing that I got away with it for 18 months. Yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive in the... Uh... In the magazine world, I mean, we actually did a review of the um, of the book, and you can check it out on our site. Uh, oh, well, I hope you said it was one of the greatest works, uh, one of the greatest works of contemporary literature. Of, of course, well, John, you've been on you've been on many expeditions. Um, I just wondered what you consider to be one of your greatest achievements on these expeditions, and uh, what really was it's kind of double barrel question. But what's the weirdest thing you've also experienced out in the field? Okay, my greatest achievement, the thing I'm most proud of, uh, I've already talked about, was demystifying the chupacabra and uh -huh. coming up with something which I think still covers all the bases for why people, why, it explains every single aspect of the chupacabra phenomenon in the of the Highlands. But the weirdest thing I ever came across, and again, let me tell you, no, I'll tell you two weirdest things. And again, let me tell you, I don't believe in uh, mumbo-jumbo or hocus-pocus, but weird shit does happen. I still believe that weird shit probably, maybe not in my lifetime, but in your lifetimes, I think a lot of this stuff will be explainable by mainstream science. It's just uh, governed by laws of nature that we don't know yet. Yes. Uh... But what I believe is, but I believe, you know, that, like I said earlier, that stuff that people call paranormal is normal, it's just we don't know how it works yet. Yes. I'll just give you two. First was, uh, I was in Mexico in 1998, and I was in the middle of, uh, sorry, I've got to give another little history lesson, I think it was 1996, the Mexican president had fucked off out of the country with most of the country's gold reserves and his 16-year-old mistress. And I believe he's still living comfortably in Ireland on the proceeds. The country was functionally bankrupt and there was a um, big loan from the International Monetary Fund to bail the country out. One of the, one of the terms of the loan was that they would bring in for the rural farmers some sort of insurance if there were sudden deaths on their animals some death on their livestock. So suddenly a whole range of um, rural vets 
were hastily trained up and given video cameras. Now, I was out in the middle of nowhere in the Pueblo Desert, and we went to talk to a vet called Soledad de la Peña, lovely girl, and she had the previous year been called out to a farm in this tiny little, tiny little village called Taloxacan, and she'd been called out to a place where in three different farms in the same village on the same night a series of attacks had taken place on sheep and cattle, sheep and um, goats. And this time we're talking about sheep and goats, the goats are the same size as normal goats. And I have seen this video, I've got it, I've got a very, very poor copy of it somewhere. She filmed this and she said that of the goats, all three of them were still alive. But, and she'd killed, she shot two of them, put them out of their misery, first of all. And, but the third one, you know that famous iconic piece of footage of the uh, Frisian cow being prodded up the tailgate with BSE, being prodded up the tailgate of that van? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like that, the thing, poor little, poor little fucker was staggering around all over the place, and it had an enormous hole in the side of its breastbone. She put on a white cotton glove made of fist. I'm seeing a pretty girl taking a cotton glove and putting a fist inside the, um, inside the uh, thoracic cavity of a living animal. Was a, well, it may turn some people on. Actually, it's pretty revolting sight. But then she brought her fist out, and there was no blood on the, no blood on uh, the white cotton glove. This thing was completely drained of blood. Its heart wasn't beating because the heart was pumped. There was nothing fit to pump, but it was still alive. It was somehow it was uh, reacting to stimuli of light, sound, and touch. Then she put the poor little bastard out of its misery. I was there about a year later, and she took me to the farm, and I met Don Pedro, the village headman. My Spanish is crap. I'm just about to buy cigarettes, although I don't smoke anymore, so that's going to be pretty useless. I thought a round of beers at the bar, and I can attract the attention of young ladies who might find a middle-aged fat cryptozoologist from England to be an attractive thing. However, I can all one other phrase I now know, because my Spanish is rubbish, but I went up to this headman, and was just... He spoke a little, he spoke no English. Luckily, the two of us spoke schoolboy French, so I was talking to him in a mixture, mixture of pidgin English, schoolboy French, and my few words of Spanish. And I said to him, Senor, why? Why are the crucifixes, nine foot high white crosses, on all the walls of these, on all the wall, every wall in the village, and why are all the windows nailed shut with garlic? He said, Senor, por protección de vampiros, and crossed himself. Everybody in the village believes that they were in mortal danger of being killed by vampires. And that is totally true. And suddenly then I thought, fucking hell, this isn't a game anymore. This is serious. Yeah. That scared the crap out of me. But I'll tell you the other one. My house is haunted. And again, I don't know whether ghosts... I don't believe ghosts and spirits of the dead... I think ghosts are some sort... I've always thought ghosts are some sort of a tape recording of emotions, which somehow have on the ether and play back over and over again. But uh, there's a poltergeist on... There's a poltergeist which occasionally makes bloody awful noises on my landing. And one night, just... Um, one night, about six months before my father died, I heard these horrible noises on the landing. 
went out. They stopped. I thought I went to check my dad was okay. I went to check everybody else in the house was okay. Happened two or three times, and then I went out and screamed at the um, screamed at the poltergeist, saying, "Look, you've probably lived here longer than I have, but if you keep me awake anymore, I'll exercise the fuck out of you. So <laughs> shut up." And then I got that was quiet for the rest of the evening. And I've always thought, you know, this is some sort of a projection of my own subconscious fears about my dad dying and all that. Two nights before my dad went into the hospital, which finally killed him, uh, the guy who was on duty called me, and I went in to sit with my dad. And my dad was saying that his time had come. If we actually found out that that was when I had lung collapsed. And he said, the only thing, he, uh, he said that the only thing that kept him sane, knowing he was going to be dead within a week, which he was, was that my mother was there with him. Well, my mother died. My mother had died. Uh, six years before, and he said, and I was saying to Dad, I'm really sorry, Dad, but Mum's dead. He said, yes, I know she's fucking dead. Listen, and I could hear there were only two people in the room. It was me and my dad, and I could hear three lots of breathing. I thought it was my dog, and then the dog came trotting in to find me, and there were four lots of breathing. And I could hear, once I got rid of the dog, and it was just me and my dad again, I could hear three lots of breathing in the room. Mm. And for the rest of the time, until my dad, until I, the next day, when I drove my father to the hospital, the journey he didn't come back from, I could hear my mum breathing there. I've never heard her since. Huh. That's quite weird. And the weird thing is, my parents were childhood sweethearts. And they got together in the early 70s, when I, early 30s. When I think my dad, mum, my mum was 12, my dad was 10. And they were together for 70 years. Oh, that's nice. And do you know what day the sound of my mother's breathing stopped in the room because my dad had finally died? Hmm. It was Valentine's Day oh. two years ago. And so the lovers who'd been together for 70 years weren't even separated for the six years my mum was dead. And I don't know if that's superstitious. I don't know if that's something that came from my own psyche. I don't know if it's just the way the world is. But that's a pretty spooky thing. Yeah, I don't think I've actually ever talked about that one before. So. Yeah. That's an exclusive for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice story, though. <laughs> it's, uh... Oh, well, thank you for having me. Oh, that's okay. If people want to get hold of you on the web, uh, where can they find you? Okay, you can find me on www.cfz.org.uk or you can see our multimedia website on www.cfztv.org. You can email me, john at eclipse.co.uk. John is J-O-N. Thanks a lot for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, yes, thank thanks, you. John. And thanks thank my... you for thinking I'm interesting enough to talk to. You <laughs> no, that's OK. And thanks for, uh, thanks for giving me a chicken autograph as well on the book. <laughs> 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 see you then. OK, see you in a bit. Opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. So uh, Scott, I've uh, I've kind of decided to become a superhero now. 
a superhero. Yeah, like you know, like a full, um, like saving people, burning buildings, pretty ladies, stuff. You know, all that stuff, all that good stuff. Really? Well, what's your superhero name? Um, awesome man. Wow. Uh, don't quit your day job. Hey, this is Scott. And this is Ben, and we're your hosts for Two Geeks and Mike in a Podcast. The show where we discuss all the latest news and rumors in the entertainment industry, all from a geek's perspective. The only perspective that matters. Join us on the web at geekshow.us. Where we become our friends at MySpace at myspace.com slash two geeks. Two geeks and Mike in a Podcast. We're here to save your day.
to Daddy Tank for doing the kind of music section for us now um, especially with the weird vocal effect which you'll hear um, uh, right so yeah Jonathan Downs a really good interview I really enjoyed talking to him actually I'm going to definitely I'm going to have to get him back on the show I said that pretty much every guest we have we've been lucky <laughs> okay so um, one thing we've we asked people to do in the last episode and not many people have so far which is annoying is we're trying to get people to review us on iTunes uh, and the only reason we're doing this is so that more people can find us because apparently the way iTunes system works is that the more people that review you positively preferably um, the more uh, chance people have of finding us on the on the iTunes store or whatever they call it um, so we're trying to appeal to our listeners to uh, you know, go out and give us a review. It doesn't have to be good. It would be preferable, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that would be great. Uh, it, again, if you want to contact me, you can contact me at ken at sittingnow.co.uk. And if people want to get in contact with you, how can they contact you by email? Uh, Mort at media-underground.net. Okay, cool. So, yeah, make sure you check out Mort's website. It's you know, really good. It's been you know, it's become one of the, uh, the, the long-standing kind of sites that deals with this kind of stuff. And it's really good. It's well-written. <laughs> So, and also check out Mort's books because he's written a couple of books well yeah we'll be back next week and with Lon Milo Duquette again who's uh, we haven't had on since episode 5 but we're going to be talking about um, Dr John Dee and Enochian magic and I think that's going to be a really cool show and the other thing is we're, cu- we're actually getting quite close to episode 23 and for people that know why that number is significant they'll know that it's going to have to be a really good show uh, so we've got something really awesome planned for episode 23 uh, I'm assuming you know what I mean by this, Mort. Uh, 23 and Yep, indeed. And also Rob Anton Wilson's uh, favourite number, from what I remember. But uh, yeah, um, so yeah, thanks Scott, again for listening. We're going to get these out weekly. I keep saying that all the time, but we actually are now because we've managed to sort out all the other side crap behind the scenes stuff. And I'll speak to you next week. And then, are you going to be with us next week, Mort? Uh, if you're going to have me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be cool. I think um, we might have another co-host as well next week uh joining me in in the sitting now uh studio if you can call it that um yeah so it might be a three-way guest uh, co-host situation so it'd be quite cool but yeah we'll be back next week with long while uh check out the website at http i always put http and i don't know why uh <laughs> check out the website sittingnow.co.uk or dot com um it's s-i-t-t-i-n-g-n-o-w just in case uh you know you can't figure out what i'm saying so hopefully if i spell it out you'll be able to come to the site uh remember to give us a review on itunes we'd really appreciate it and we'll see you next week